would please have a seat. I'm so glad that we serve a God that moves mountains. I'm so glad that we serve a God who saves sinners like you and me. I'm so glad that we serve a God who is willing and able to demonstrate his love by sending his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin. I'm so glad that we serve a God who is so powerful and sovereign and provident over the world that he created that his only son did not stay dead in that tomb, but on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, conquering death and sin and providing everlasting life to every single person who turns from sin and trusts in him as Lord and Savior. Are you glad that we serve that kind of God today? Amen. All right, we're going to be moving now into our time of the children's message. So kids, you come on up here. We're going to be on the right side today because we have our Lord's Supper set up over here. Come on over here. Come on. Have a seat right here. Perfect. All right. All right, is that everybody that wants to come up here? He's not, okay. Maybe next time you can come if you want to, okay? All right, isn't today a great day? A great day to worship Jesus? Let me ask you guys another day that you probably love. Does anybody here love to celebrate a birthday? Do you, you, yes? We love our birthday. What is one of our favorite things about our birthday? Cake. What's your favorite part about your birthday? Presents. Presents. Do you love getting presents on your birthday? Yes. You love receiving gifts? It's okay to say yes. I love, I like getting gifts on my birthday. It's great, right? Yes. Now, when it's your birthday and you're going to receive gifts for your birthday, do you have to go to someone's house and maybe do some chores around their house to earn the gift that they give you? No. no? Do, that would be kind of funny. Then you'd be doing a job, right? And then they'd be paying you for your work. But they just give you a gift, right? Because they love you, right? Did you know that we don't earn our salvation from God? Did you know that? That the salvation we receive from God is a gift? Did you know that? It's not something that we earn. It's something that God gives us by his grace. It's like, it's a present. And the present comes in the form of a person. Do you know who that person is? Jesus. Jesus is the gift that God gave to us so that we could receive salvation from our sins. So our salvation from God and the relationship we have with God is not something we earn. It's something we receive by God's grace, okay? So the word of the day today is Gentile. Ready? Gentile. I say it a lot, so you make sure you keep a count, okay? All right, you guys can go sit down. Thank you so much for coming. All right, church, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word with me this morning and open up to Acts, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Now, if you have a bulletin in your hands, you may have read it over and saw that the title of the message today is Business Meeting. So that probably got you real excited, right? Did any of you look at it and wonder, did I come to church today for a business meeting? You didn't. It's okay. I'm just let you know right now, we're not here for a business meeting. What we have in the 15th chapter of Acts is a record of one of the first business meetings 
of the church, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But I promise you, it's going to be much more exciting than most of the business meetings that you have attended. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, sit halfway through the book of Acts, is the book that I'm preaching through right now. The first half of the book of Acts demonstrate the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So take your Bible and first let's go there real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples shortly before he ascends to be at the right hand of the Father, giving them their mission, telling them this is what's going to happen now. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 1 verse, uh, through Acts chapter 14 are the church's initial fulfillment of Acts 1-8, of taking the gospel first to Jerusalem. And then you remember Acts chapter 6, persecution started to well up in Jerusalem. So the believers were scattered. So then they took, uh, they took the gospel out to, out of, outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and then that second part's fulfilled. And then later, toward the end of the first half of the book of Acts, Peter has this unique calling by God from Jesus directly to go and to share the gospel with the Gentile man, Cornelius. And we see the initial fulfillment of the last part of Acts 1-8, which is the uttermost parts of the outermost parts of the world. In Acts chapter 15, we have the... the determination or the decision from the church how they're going to properly fulfill the mission to the Gentiles. Up to this point, not many Gentiles had been reached, uh, but the Gentiles in the church at Antioch, which was primarily Gentile believers, started to follow Jesus. And they're trying to figure out now, how do we welcome Gentiles into the church? And so what we're going to see initially in these first five verses is a theological disagreement. A theological disagreement that arose within the church trying to answer the question, how do Gentile Christians, how do Gentiles become Christians? How do Gentiles become Christians? See, what's going on now is the Jews are following Jesus. Many Jews have heard the gospel, they're following Jesus. And now that, that gospel message has, has proliferated out into the outermost parts of the world, out to where the Gentiles live, and they're starting to receive Jesus. And so the, the Jewish Christians are starting to ask, so, so how do these Gentiles come into the faith of Jesus? How do they come into the church? And there are some on one side that are going to say, well, for them to be legitimate, real, biblical Christians, they need to become Jews. And so they need to behave the way a proselyte would before Jesus came, which means males have to be circumcised. And then after that, they have to obey the law of Moses, including all the food, uh, sacrificial rituals, all of that stuff that the Jews obeyed. A, a, a Gentile, to be a legitimate follower of Jesus, must obey all of that just like we do. So that was one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is, no, no, no. The Gentiles heard the gospel. They repented of their sin. They trusted in Jesus as Savior. They received the indwelling Holy Spirit as evidence that God has indeed saved them apart from the law. And so they do not need to fulfill the law of Moses. And so that's 
what we're going to dive into today. And so look with me in, in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. Now, some of the teachers had come from Jerusalem. It says that they came, came uh, down to Antioch, which is interesting, because typically when, when someone travels north, we say they go up, right? If you're going to go visit relatives in Tennessee, where do you go? Up to Tennessee, right? Because you're going north. Well, in Bible language, uh, Jerusalem was uh, one of the highest points in that area. So when people left Jerusalem, they were always going down from Jerusalem, uh, which is also called Mount Zion in the Bible. So they're going down. So that's why it says that in there. They went down from Jerusalem to Antioch because they traveled lower in elevation. And so these, some of these people came from Jerusalem, and they created kind of a problem in Antioch. And the, what they were presenting uh, was that you had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be a real Christian. Paul describes this event again in Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, the matter arose because some false brothers, so Paul identifies these folks that came from Jerusalem as, as illegitimate believers. He doesn't believe that they were Christians. They had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So these false believers come and they share that you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas fiercely debate against them, telling them, you do not have to do that. And they create kind of this, this issue. And so the church at Antioch feels like maybe they need to get some assistance from the other brothers in Jerusalem. So they send Paul and Barnabas and some others down to Jerusalem in order to help them understand what needs to happen. So go to verse 3. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So Jerusalem is about 250 miles away from Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas and the others who went with them are going to take probably about a month to make that trip to get down there. And so Paul, being a great missionary, he's not just going to take the direct route that many of us probably would do. Instead, he goes back and he visits the churches on the way to Jerusalem and on his way, he testifies about what God has done through them in, on their previous mission, which I just uh, taught you in the last like three chapters of the book of Acts. And so the churches hear about this. They're celebrating it. They're recognizing that the gospel is going out and that, that the Gentiles have been invited by God to receive Jesus and to be saved and to be welcomed into the church. 
Well, finally, Paul and Barnabas and the others reach Jerusalem. And now in Jerusalem, they're, they're going to share the same testimony with the brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. They're welcomed by the church, and, and the leaders there accept them, and they're celebrating what God has done through them and through their ministry to the Gentile people. A group of Christians, they're identified as believers here, who used to be Pharisees, stand up in opposition. Now, the Pharisees are a specific sect of Jews that were known for being meticulous fulfillers of the law. Jesus said they even measured out their tithe of spices on a scale to make sure that they never cheated God of their tithe. Many of them, throughout the, the Gospels you see, stood against Jesus and preached and taught the crowds not to follow him. But apparently some of those Pharisees had been one to the Lord. They received Christ, and now they were following him, and they were a part of the Jerusalem church. So they stand up amidst uh, Paul and Barnabas' testimony that the Gentiles have been saved and that the church is growing among both Jews and Gentiles. And they say, listen, listen. No one can be a Christian, a Jesus follower, unless they are also um, circumcised and follow the law of Moses. So essentially they're saying, if someone wants to be a true believer and follower of Jesus, they must be like us. They must follow circumcision. They must follow the, the law of Moses. Not only the Ten Commandments, which Paul taught people to follow in the New Testament, but also circumcision and food laws, uh, ritual purity, the elements of the law that Paul later will see doesn't teach the believers that they're necessarily important for them to follow. The Pharisees also followed an extensive oral tradition, which many people considered to be an essential part of following the law. So you're probably now, your eyes are rolling back in your head, so let me just show you why this is important. So we're not just talking right now about a theological disagreement. We're, we're also talking about the practice of following God and worshiping Him. So the question on the table is, does a Gentile need to become a Jew to be a Christian? So Paul's given his testimony. Next, Peter and James are going to weigh in. So Peter's going to give a testimony. Look at verse 6. It says, The apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. So the apostles mentioned here are Peter, James, and John considered the pillars of the faith they lived at that time in Jerusalem and were the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Peter stands and begins to address the church in verse 7. After they had, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction among us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter is a well-respected leader in the church. We remember Peter, right? Among the disciples who walked with Jesus, Peter was always the one that they kind of pushed forward 
to approach Jesus with questions. He was also the one that received Jesus' castigation and and wrath when he asked the wrong question. So Peter was always kind of the sacrificial lamb, talking to the lamb, and uh, he was always the one willing to ask the hard questions. So he's got a lot of respect. He's also the one that stood in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and delivered the message to the people of Jerusalem when 5,000 people were saved. God used him to fearlessly proclaim the gospel. So when Peter stood and spoke, people listened. Once again, the Holy Spirit leads him to stand and preach to the people in their time of need. He stands and shares his own experience among the Gentiles because he was one of the first to go out and to reach them with the gospel. He specifically explains a few important things about that event. He tells them that God saved them, that God filled them with the Holy Spirit, that the faith exercised by the Gentiles was by God's grace through faith in Jesus and not through their own works. Simply put, Peter shared the gospel with the Gentiles. They believed it by faith and received the Holy Spirit apart from the law. And that's Peter's testimony. This is evidence, what Peter is proclaiming here, that God received the Gentiles by faith in Jesus alone, apart from the law. One scholar writes something important. Listen. Peter undoubtedly was thinking of his vision. You guys remember this in Acts 10, 15. Jesus said, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. For the Jew... Circumcision was a mark of sanctity and purity, of belonging to God's people and being acceptable to him. But in Cornelius, that's the person that Peter shared the gospel with who was saved. He was a Gentile. God had shown Peter that true purity comes not by external mark, but by faith in Jesus. So next, Peter turns from addressing the crowds and specifically talks to these Judaizers, the ones who claimed that Gentiles had to be circumcised and follow the law. Look at verse 10. He says, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So what he's saying here is God already accepted them apart from the law. Adding additional requirements for salvation upon them when we know that God's already received them is actually testing God. It's like God gave him this gift of salvation and we're saying, no, 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 I don't want this gift. Instead, I want to earn the salvation. That's what Peter is telling them here. He also reminds them, That while the law was good, that it did come from God, they could not fulfill it, according to Romans 2, 17 through 24. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because they couldn't fulfill the law. He came and fulfilled it perfectly in our place. Peter draws his argument to a close with one final swing of his theological hammer. In verse 11, he says, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Next, James, this is Jesus' brother, he gives a testimony. 
in verse 12 it begins. The whole silent, or the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, so Peter speaks, then Paul and Barnabas go into another uh, explanation or testimony about what God has done through them among the Gentiles. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. So why did, why did James have to say that? So you guys remember my description of how these, these gatherings went, which I'm so glad they don't go that way here. Uh, Peter speaks. He shares his thoughts about what God is doing. Then the congregation is going to like talk and argue and debate about what Peter just said. And then Paul and Barnabas are going to get in front of the congregation, and then they're going to say everything that God's done in, in places like Derby and um, Pisidian Antioch, the places I just taught you about the last month. And then all the people, they're going to start talking about it and arguing about it. It's going to be real loud. There's lots of activity. And then, and then finally, James stands up, and he's got to tell everybody, listen, listen, everyone be quiet, okay? Just be quiet and listen. And so then everybody quiets down. And now James is going to give a little bit of biblical counsel. This is Jesus' brother. He's what we would probably consider a neutral third party, right? James has not been involved in reaching the Gentiles. I mean, he's Jesus' brother, and he's an apostle. So he's, I, I think, probably someone that the Jews would trust, the Jewish believers would trust him and say, okay, he, he's, he's one of us. And so what he has to say, we're going to listen to that. Look at verse 14. James says, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, in case you didn't recognize that, in verse 14, Simeon is also Peter's name. All right? So Simeon is Peter, the same guy that just spoke. Verse 15. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After these things I shall return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So Peter offers an eyewitness testimony about what God did through him in reaching the Gentile Cornelius and his family. Then James stands up and he says, all right, everybody listen up. And he's going to begin quoting the Old Testament to them, Specifically, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. This is a prophecy from the prophet Amos about the end times when the Messiah is going to come and what's going to happen when the Messiah does come. Specifically, James points out in verse 17 that the Gentiles will be called by God. This means that they will be a part of the family of God. This means that future Israel will be brought under the lordship of Jesus, the Savior, and it will include both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is the one who rebuilds David's fallen tent, who fulfills the old covenant with God, who establishes a new covenant between God and man and provides salvation from sin and a pathway to reconciliation with God. So James takes this group who are struggling with the inclusion of the Gentiles in their church. He said, y'all remember Amos chapter 9? And he read it to them, probably had it memorized. And by saying that, he's trying to tell them, 
God intends to include both Jew and Gentile in the church. Verse 19, he continues, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. So James first establishes God's desire to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, that God desires, that Jesus desires, for Gentiles to hear the gospel and to be saved. Next, he says, we, we shouldn't put any unnecessary obstacles on the Gentiles or in front of them that would prevent them from experiencing the fullness of Christ and the joy of salvation. Therefore, in agreement with Peter, he, he tells him that Gentile Christians should not be expected to receive circumcision or to observe the law. The Gentile Christians should, however, abstain from certain things. So when James says this second part, what he's trying to do is he's trying to establish a common ground between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So Jewish Christians still observed the law. They still ate certain things. They still didn't go certain places. They didn't touch things. They did touch things. They worshiped in a very specific way. And the Gentile Christians, they didn't live that way because they weren't Jews. And so James is now trying to find some common ground so that a fellowship could be established between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers so they could come together, so they could eat at the same table, so they could celebrate the Lord's Supper together, so they could worship together. Their observation of these specific laws that James mentions would allow them to engage in fellowship and unity as a church. The second thing James asked them to do there is to abstain from sexual immorality. The things having to do with uh, having food that's been strangled and with blood and with sexual immorality had to do with cult uh, pagan worship practices. And so what would happen, even probably was happening in Antioch where many of these believers lived, was there was, there was Roman cultic worship all over the place. Cities were filled with temples, and these temples uh, did all kinds of, of immoral activities in addition to some of the ways that they offered sacrifices. So James is trying to tell the, the new believers, uh, basically, you need to separate yourselves from this pagan worship. Remember, this pagan worship had infiltrated all of their society, and so to separate yourself from that would be a sacrifice. And he's commanding them to do so, so that the fellowship between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers could be unified. And so the Gentile Christians were extended freedom in Christ to live by faith, apart from the Jewish law. But they also asked them to observe very specific ways of living so that their unity with the Jewish believers would remain strong. So they could worship together and eat together and minister together and build up their fellowship. Finally, James reminds the Jewish Christians in that last verse there, uh, in verse 21, which seems kind of odd when you read it. He talks about Moses had been read every week on the Sabbath. Why did he put that in there? Well, that was for the Gentiles. He was telling them, listen guys, 
remember your Jewish brothers and sisters. They've been observing this law all their lives. It's very personal to them. It's very important to them. Granted, it's not their means of salvation, but it is their means of worshiping God. And it's okay for them to do that, to, to, to observe the law. And so you need to be patient with them, and you need to limit your freedoms in their regard so that you can have unity in, in, in worship with your Jewish brothers and sisters. And so that's the end of what James has to say. So how does the church react to that? Look at verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. And they wrote. So this is a letter that they sent to the Gentiles in Antioch. <clears throat> From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So why was this letter so important to the Jewish or to the Gentile believers? Picture yourself as a Gentile believer who had just heard the gospel, turned from sin, trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then experienced the joy of the Lord, the filling of the Holy Spirit, a new life, to for the first time in your life feel salvation and acceptance from the God who created you. Imagine that. And then imagine having someone come to you and tell you, you're not really saved. You're not really a Christian. You're still lost. You're still going to go to hell and receive God's wrath and judgment unless you're circumcised and you follow the law of Moses. Now, if someone were to come in here and stand up and tell you that, that would probably create quite a stir in your heart. If you were a new believer and didn't have really good rock-solid theology that all the people in this church have, you might start to wonder and doubt your salvation in Christ. So that's why they were so excited to receive this letter and the affirmation from their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, telling them that we believe that you are our brothers and our sisters in Christ because you've expressed faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Those guys that came to you were wrong, and they were in error. Verse 30 continues. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, and, uh, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they went back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so the business meeting had successfully ended. And the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and Antioch were unified under proper theology, recognizing that salvation 
comes from Jesus alone, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus. Now, let me just conclude with a couple of points in application for our lives, because we don't necessarily have pressure among this congregation or from other teachers that we need to be circumcised and fulfill the law. But let me give all of us a warning today. We must never put unnecessary burdens on people for salvation. The gospel is simple. It's effective. And it's clear that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That God in his love and grace and mercy sent his son Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross, while on the cross received the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. His blood poured out on that cross and was poured out as an atonement, as a sacrifice for us. And Jesus died, he was buried in the ground, and he rose on the third day and gives us this offering, this invitation, that if we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we will be saved. That is the legitimate gospel. We are saved by faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the gift. How can we act like Judaizers, though? How do we put unnecessary obstacles in front of people who want to come to Jesus? Well, sometimes we do it on purpose, and sometimes we do it by accident. But a couple of things I thought of were this. A lot of times we make people feel, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, that you got to get yourself cleaned up before you come to Christ. You need to stop doing that, and you need to do this and this. None of that's true. They must repent of their sin and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the gift from God. That's the call of the gospel. Now, God's not going to leave us the way we are. He calls us to live a life in obedience to his word and to his son Jesus. That is what it means to follow Jesus. But let's not put obstacles in the way of people who are living a very difficult life. Let's share the gospel with them first and lead them to Christ, and then show them how to follow Jesus. The second thing that happens, and I've run into this more often than the other one, is many people believe that, that you just need to do good things to be acceptable to God, that our essential, essentially that our life, uh, when we go, when we die, or when the end comes, will be in front of God, and, and all of our deeds will be weighed on this scale, and as long as we have more good deeds than bad deeds, that God will accept us. That's untrue, and that is a lie from Satan. Why is it a lie, and why is it from Satan? Because the gospel is by the grace of God, not by works, so that no man or woman may boast. When we believe that we can do good works to be acceptable by God, we're testing him. We're telling him that your gift is not good enough for me. That I will earn your salvation. When the Bible tells us that it's impossible for us to make things right with God on our own, and that's why he sent Jesus. We can't be a good person and go to heaven. Why? Because none of us are good. We're made good by Jesus. The second thing I want to point out, and then I'll be finished, is we ought to accommodate other believers' needs. 
we've been overcome, I think, as a society, uh, not necessarily as a church, but as, as a society, especially in Western culture, that my needs, my desires, what I want must be met. That what I want and what I need and what I desire is more important than what you need, want, or desire. And so we've become a very selfish culture, haven't we? We've got to accommodate our lives to the needs of other believers. And so we consider others, as Paul said, to be more important than ourselves. We're a very, very diverse congregation. Did you know that? Last time I counted, it's all not present in here today, but last time I counted, we had, in one service, we had over 12 languages represented in a worship service on a Sunday morning. 12 different languages, probably representing 12 different cultures, 12 different styles of worship, 12 different ways to dress, 12 different ways to live. That's some diversity. And that's beautiful. You know why? Because it represents what's going to happen at the throne, right? Because that throne is going to be populated by people from every people group all over the world, from all times. And so it's just getting us ready for that. You know, in one day of ministry, I can have a Cuban coffee in the morning. I can have some Chinese food for lunch. Conch fritters at about three, southern fried chicken for dinner, and empanadas for dessert. And I have had all those things on the same day. From you all. Not I didn't make it at home. I went to friends around the city and I ate all those foods. We have much freedom in Christ. Praise God, right? Praise God for the freedom we have in Christ. We're not bound and enslaved by a law. We are free in Christ. But our freedom shouldn't disrupt the sweet fellowship we have here at Fifth Street Baptist Church. Let's be gracious to one another. And let's surrender our freedoms when necessary to be catalysts for a good fellowship. I can't think of any better way to fellowship as a church than to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to do next. The Lord's Supper is something that Jesus commanded for us to do. It is an ordinance of the church. It's something we do to remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us on the cross. It's something that we're warned in Scripture is to be done only by born-again believers. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'd warn you not to take the Lord's Supper, but I want to talk to you about how you could participate in the body of Christ by following Jesus. We're also warned not to take the Lord's Supper lightly. And so in a moment, we're going to have a time when we pass out the elements for you to repair your heart and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If, if there's something between you and the Lord that's wrong, that, that you feel right now the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind, you've got an opportunity to confess that to the Lord and make things right. If there's an unbroken fellowship in here among you, go to that person and confess that and, and make it right. But in just a moment, we're going to celebrate this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross and also that he's coming again to bring us home.
take out the bread now. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. Now the juice. When the supper had ended, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and lived a perfect life. And you gave that life as a sacrificial death on the cross for us. Help us to be unified through the celebration of this service. And may we go out from this place and proclaim the gospel so that more can hear and believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're now going to move into a time of invitation. And this is a time for you to respond to whatever God has laid on your heart. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, please come forward so I can show you the way to follow Christ. Or perhaps you want to come forward and pray. We have the altar open. Whatever God's doing in your life, now is the time to respond to that. I'll be up front here to receive you. Would you all stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we pray over this time of invitation. We pray that you would give us the faith necessary to take that step wherever the Holy Spirit is leading us to go. Whether it's being saved or joining this church or following through with baptism, or even just to maybe leave something at the altar for you to take care of. Whatever it is, God, help us to respond to that now during this moment of decision. In Jesus' name I pray.